Bienvenue au Théâtre Miskatonic. Ce soir, nous jurerons le Théâtre de Chair de Jean-Charles Ray. Je m'appelle Stu et je serai votre gardien de savoir arcanique. Welcome to the Miskatonic Playhouse. Tonight, we will be playing The Theatre of Flesh by Jean-Charles Ray. My name is Stu and I will be your keeper of arcane lore for tonight. I'd just like to go around the table and introduce our intrepid investigators. Hi, I'm Rena, and I will be playing the Honourable Eugene Worthington Mills, dilettante. Hi everyone, I'm Lydia, and I'm playing Babette Schoenberg, a ballet teacher from Paris. Hello, I'm T.A. Newman, and I shall be playing Anthony Contralto. I'm a bit of a gangster, mobster, up-and-coming uh, head of the family. The year is 1923, and you are in Paris. Paris post-war. The city is full of life, and the particular part of Paris that you are in is Le Quartier Pigalle. Possibly the red light district of the city, but also the vibrant beating heart of the avant-garde, of culture. And this is where you are meeting your friend, Mary Riley. You have all gathered together in a small cafe, the Café Nouvelle Athènes which is found on the Rue de Pagale. Mary is sitting there, sipping an absinthe, as she always does, and making light conversation. You all know Mary, but how do you know Mary? Let's start with the Honourable mm. Eugene Worthington Mills. I've rather been Mary's escort to some parties and things, and gone to see her shows, all that sort of thing. You know, it's delightful, delightful girl. And Barbette, how do you know Mary? Uh, Babette was once her teacher. When Mary was a child, she took a few dance lessons, not because she intended <laughs> to ever go into dance as a career, as far as I'm aware, but just for her general deportment and grace and means of carrying herself. And Anthony, how do you know Mary? Uh, I've done a bit of business with the family, her father, Christopher. He's, uh, well, let's say he's in the pocket of a pocket, and... He asked a small favour. I don't mind him getting in the pocket of a pocket of a pocket. You know what I'm saying? It's business. Mary Riley is a young lady in her early 20s. She is dressed as the American fashion is at the moment, as a flapper. She has a long, slim dress sequined down to her knee, and she's wearing a headband with a large, white, ostrich-plumed feather. Mary looks at you all, seated around the table, and laughs. I am so pleased that you have come to see my, my debut performance. I mean, yes, I know I've been I've been silly, coming all the way over here, leaving my life in, in, in America for, for what, chasing a dream of being an actress, but it's finally happening. I'm finally going on stage. I, can you believe it? I mean, Eugene, you, you've seen, you've seen what I can do. You, 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 know, you know I can do this, can't you? Don't You're you? an absolute star, darling. I know I am. I know I am. <laughs> And oh, Miss Schoenberg, Madame Schoenberg, it's uh, it couldn't have happened without without your help here. And uh, Mister Contralto, I'm not quite sure why Daddy saw fit to send you over from all the way from America just to just to look after little old me. But I, I tell you, I'm absolutely fine. But as you're here, you might as well join us. The uh, the Grand Guignol Theatre. It's it's such a break. It's such a a wonderful place to perform. Surely you must have heard of it. 
been there several times, dear. You'll fit in right well. Are you doing one of those shows with those wonderful mad scientist types? Oh, well, I don't want to ruin it for you now. I, I don't want to ruin what I'm doing, but uh, let's just say that uh, one of them has been written especially for me. Uh, it's, it, it's wonderful. The, the, the authors are so clever. They're, they're awfully clever, and, and they know exactly what we want to see. But, uh, yes, it's, uh, it should be a wonderful, wonderful time. I think Babette knows exactly what kind of shows go on at the Grand Guignol, <laughs> and she's uh, incredibly puzzled and maybe a little bit ashamed that a former pupil of hers is now ending up here. So, uh, what 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 is this uh, Grand Bourdonnais? Uh, uh, what what is it about then? What's what's the story? Is it like a Romeo and Juliet kind of thing? Oh, Grand Guignol, it's absolutely wonderful. It really shows you the true depth of human emotion. You get the comedy, you get the laughs, and, and you get the sadness, you get the, the darkness in man's heart. And, well, I was talking to Monsieur Delord, who uh, who writes a lot of the plays, and Monsieur Latour, and they, they said that these plays that they are showing, they really are probably the epitome of what Paris is about at the moment. I, I can't wait to, for you to see what, what's going on. And she, she looks at her... her, her her wristwatch. And she says, well, uh, speaking of which, I, I think we really must be getting on. I I'm on stage in an hour's time. We really must be getting ready for this. I hope you've all uh, got yourself prepared for what you're in for here. Um, is there anything we need to be doing before you go? Just ready for a bloody good time. And chuckles. Well, that I can guarantee. <laughs> that I can guarantee you shall have. Yeah, I... I... You uh, d d d you look like you're happy. You look like you're looking after yourself. Um, is everything you know? You, you, everything else as good as your your, your theater thing? Oh oh yes, the uh, the most wonderful thing happened when I moved here to Paris. I was singing in a few nightclubs, as it was, just trying to make ends meet. Daddy's money was running a little low, as it was, and, and then I met Paula. Paula Maxa, she's the star of the Grand Guignol. They call her the, the, the Sarah Bernhardt of the Grand Guignol. The most murdered woman in Paris. Uh, she must have died a thousand times on stage in, uh, in, in her years of acting. It's, it's, it's... Well, she told me that I had exactly what was needed for this show, for this performance. And, well, here I am. I've been rehearsing, I've been practicing, I've been putting all of my time and effort in it. There's nothing can go wrong tonight. And with that, she stands up in her usual flamboyant way. Chucks a couple of sous onto the uh, table for the waiter and dances out into the night, ready to go to the theatre. Break both legs, darling. Okay. Babette's eyebrows have been slowly raising <laughs> higher and higher and higher throughout this conversation. So, uh, Eugene, uh, you, uh, you, you went to these uh, Grand Gunials before? Oh, once or twice, uh... Although only the best people go there, old chap. It would explain why I haven't seen you there, I suppose. Hey, well, yeah, you're in Paris, France, you know. You gotta see the sights and do the things uh, that the best people do. And, uh, uh Babette. Babette? Babette. Yeah, Babette. Uh, you, uh, <laughs> what, uh, you bit of a dance teacher? You, you, you teach them all this? Uh, certainly not the kind of dance that they do at the Grand Guignol. I... I was once a ballerina. Uh, sadly, an accident with a carriage and an icy pavement ended my career, but Ooh. I have been teaching ever since. That's mm -hmm. a shame. I once knew a guy who uh, 
carriage at a nicely patch ended his career, if you know what I mean. Well, uh, let's just say the Grand Guignol is somewhat modern for my more classical tastes. Mm. So you prepare yourselves for an evening at the theatre. The Grand Guignol is a small theatre to the south of the Bigal. It is at the end of a cul-de-sac, and as you wander down the narrow Paris streets, you start feeling that the buildings are, are closer down here. The atmosphere is oppressive. The sounds of the bon vivants of the Bigal quieten down. It's eerily silent, but as you approach the theatre, the crowds outside start to lift the noise. You can hear the excited chatter of the public as they are ready to enter into the theatre. And can everybody give me a luck roll, please? <gasps> Ooh, I got a 21. Ooh. Ooh, okay. 21 under 65. Third, 31 under 50. Oh, that's a fail for me. 80. <laughs> fail for me. So, 87 against 75. At the opening of the street on which the Grand Guignol sits, there is a man. He's wearing quite dour clothing. He looks almost puritanical. And he's holding leaflets. And he's accosting people walking down towards the theatre. Babette, as you walk past, he grabs your shoulder, twists you around and says, Are you sure you want to be going here? Do you not know the depravity that is on show at this theatre? I warn you, for your own mortal soul, do not approach. Step away. Plead this area. There are much nicer places. There are much more sacred places. This is a den of sin. You must beware it. You must. Do I know you, sir? And she steps back and pushes him away quite resolutely. If you know God, you will know me. If you do not know God, then welcome to the Grand Guignol. And he thrusts a leaflet at you and moves on to somebody else. I had a feeling he worked here, but it is rather the, clever marketing. <laughs> the Grand Guignol Theatre looms over the end of the street. This building was once a church. And you can still see the edifices of broken saints standing on chipped platforms outside. The large oaken doors are still shut. And the throng of Parisians in evening dress line the street, chatting loudly amongst each other. You see, Mary is talking to a rather tall lady, surrounded by three men as well. As she spots you, she gives you a little wave and it beckons you to come forward. Saunter over. Eugene always saunters. That is the only way he moves. <clears throat> Likewise, Anthony. Um, uh, it kind of strides slash waddles over. It's kind of like a mix between the two. Uh, but he tries to make it look cool next to Eugene's saunter. <laughs> Mabette has a very slight limp from uh, that accident with the carriage, but she, she knows how to move in a way that disguises it. So she just kind of follows gracefully. <laughs> and as you approach, she grabs onto your shoulders, Anthony, 
and gives you the proper Parisian greeting with a kiss on each cheek, and then turns to Eugene and the same, and the same to Barbette. I am so glad that you finally made it here. You took your time, I have to say. <laughs> Please, I must introduce you to my friends. This is Paula, and she gestures towards the tall lady, a very elegant lady with a bobbed blonde hair. Paula Maxa, I'm sure you've heard of her, one of the big names here at the Grand Guignol. She gives you a little curtsy, and uh, Eugene, a little wink. I wink back. I wouldn't be surprised if maybe you've had encountered each other in the past in uh, your visits to the Grand Vinol. Encountered. Previously. <laughs> Encountered. <laughs> and Mary turns to some of the, the three gentlemen who are standing nearby. You see a rather short, balding man with a high collared shirt and a rather garish bow tie. He's talking to a tall, slim, blonde man and a medium-height black man with another moustache, wearing glasses, horn-rimmed glasses as well. Uh, please, may I introduce you to probably the most important people here at the Grand Guignol. This, pointing to the short man, is André de Lourdes, the, the master of the Grand Guignol at the moment. He is the Prince of Terror. He wrote so many of the plays here, and you'll be seeing one of his plays tonight. André looks at you, gives you a little uh, nod, well, <laughs> I must say, uh, I have killed more people on this stage than any murderer in human history. I promise you that you will not be disappointed tonight. It's a very bold, uh, oh, it's a very bold claim you're making there, you know, killing people out right here in, uh, in front of all these folk and that, you know, uh, back home. We, we, you got to keep that on the down low, you know, you can't be, uh, can't be flapping your lips about that kind of thing, huh? <laughs> you are such a funny man, monsieur. Dear in... Paris, death is transient. Death is not the end here. We die, but it helps us to live. Do you not realize that there is beauty in all things? Death is just another beautiful flower that we must all experience at some point in our lives. And some of us, we get to experience much more than the average man. <laughs> he gives a little giggle. As he says this, as well. Try to roll me psychology. Yeah. Fail eighty-five against fifty. I fail seventy-seven against thirty. And I failed with a sixty-eight against fifty. He is an odd man, but you suspect this is probably just theatrics, as he is a playwright. He's probably prone to theatrics. And Mary introduces the tall blonde gentleman with a slightly sardonic look on his face. And this is Louis Latour. He's written a special play, the second one that you'll be seeing. It's, uh, I, I get a starring role in it. Now, I don't want to give you any spoilers. I don't want to ruin it for you, but it's, it's quite a big deal as well. <laughs> Do you know what? He's a doctor of all things. He's a doctor as well as a playwright. What a very clever man he is. And Louis, again, gives you a little nod. He's quite quiet. He acknowledges you there as well and turns back to talking to the shorter black man with the rather fancy moustache and horn-rimmed glasses. Oh, and that gentleman talking to him, that's uh, Monsieur Dumont. He's also a doctor. I'm not quite sure why he's here. He doesn't write for the plays, but he's a good friend of André de Lord. Mm. He'll give you a listen, Roland. 
Listening is not Eugene's strong suit. Oh, man, no. Fail, 78. Ah, that was a normal success for Babette, but I could spend five points of luck and make it a hard, which I think I might do. It won't affect it, or will it? No, normal successes is fine. Okay. Eugene and Anthony, you are almost inundated by the, the noise of the crowd mm. building up as, as you do. Say, Dr. Latour and Dr. Delmont have wandered off a little from the group now. But, Babette, as they are, you, you can hear that their argument is getting a little heated. You can, you can hear words creeping through in the crowd. Can I just ask what your French skill is? Um, that would be own, wouldn't it? Because she is a native Parisian uh, and her edu is 64. Fantastic. So you do not need to roll to understand what is being said. But Dr. Delmont is very animatedly telling Dr. Latour that his methods are unsound. But soon they are lost in the crowd, as the doors of the Grand Guignol Theatre swing open. Paula and Mary bid you farewell until the end of the show, as they dart in, the stage door being in the foyer of the theatre itself. And the rest of the crowd start to flow into this church of horror, this theatre of the obscene. The walls inside the Grand Guignol are still painted as the Catholic Church that it once was, almost in a mockery of the godlessness that, well, you can expect in such a place. The statues of angels on the wall look down at you, and as you flow through, you're greeted by a bar. And of course, being in Paris, everybody is heading to the bar, they're coming away with glasses of wine, glasses of brandy, glasses of absinthe, enjoying themselves, laughing. It almost seems out of place that such enjoyment could be held in an area, in a building, that has such an atmosphere of... Well, you can't quite place it, but there's definitely something. And slowly and surely, you make your way into the theatre itself, into the auditorium. Mary has reserved you seats on the balcony in the old confessional booths at the back of that gallery. And as you settle yourselves down, you can hear snatches of conversation. People are talking in anticipation. People are excited. A couple of people are worried. They've not been here before. Are they going to enjoy it? There's only one way to find out. What are your actions while you are waiting for the show to begin. I get a brandy. I think that's a very good idea. Uh, if I see Eugene going for a brandy, I will be like, oh, whoa, uh, Eugene, uh, should we double up? I suppose you're drinking the best they've got to, Anthony. You know it, you know it. And then I'm actually, unsuspecting of Anthony, I'm going to kind of listen in maybe to the next balconies either side of us, unless Barbette wants to, to talk or anything. Um, and I'm going to try and use my French skill to try and listen in a little bit. Please do. I was going to ask, um, for the avoidance of doubt here, I think if you have a French skill of 50 or above, you do not need to roll to understand modern French. Uh, I have... Uh, you're not going to believe this. I have 51. 
So do I. Oh, <laughs> oh we? We're Very in the same convenient. queue when they were handing out languages. <laughs> for the sake of uh, for the sake of this scenario, I, I think you all understand French well enough to. Uh, so I shall now proceed to say the perform the entirety of this scenario in French, and I hope that you will. Uh, Bonjour. Huh? <laughs> this is where we get Pete to translate everything that we've done into French. Absolutely. That will be fun. Monsieur Contralto. Monsieur? Signor? Mister? Uh, How would you prefer? Uh, monsieur. Monsieur. Anthony. <laughs> Anthony, you are listening in to the conversation next door. It's a young couple. They appear to be students. They appear to be students of the arts. And they're excitedly talking about last night when they also came to Gonguinol to see different shows. They were talking about how the effects were, were magical. The deaths appeared so real on stage. And one of them said, Oh, the costumes were wonderful. That fellow who was standing at the back of the stage during the fourth show, so monstrous. Well, I, I, I couldn't see the joins in his costume. It was absolutely wonderful. I'm not quite sure exactly how he fitted into the play, but it was spectacular. And they move on to other conversation. And soon... The house lights, the gas lights, dim. And a spotlight comes up on the centre of the stage. The red velvet curtain almost shimmers as something parts it. It's a rather short, bald man. You recognise him. It is Monsieur André de Lourdes, the Prince of Terror. And he projects, announces to the theatre, Mesdames et Messieurs! Tonight we take you inside the very soul of humanity itself, to the horrors and joy that lie beneath. What you are about to witness will shock you. It will make you cry. It will make you laugh. But fear not, we have a doctor on hand in case anyone is overcome. Now, without further ado, bienvenue au Théâtre de Grande Guinal. And he steps aside, and the small orchestra plays a short fanfare as the curtain opens and the show begins. Barbette, it's worth mentioning that you are currently holding in your hand a playbill that was thrust at you by one of the uh, people mm-hmm. today. Are you having a look at it? Are you interested in what's being shown? Definitely. Or is this something you want Definitely. to have I don't think she would have gone for a drink. I think she would have sat and read the playbill. So the playbill itself gives you a short summary of what you can expect. What you are seeing tonight is what is known as the Scottish Shower. An evening at the Grand Guinol is based on the alternation between steamy comedies and bloody dramas. The comedies had to warm up the senses of the spectators to prepare them for the cold shower of the latter horrors. And today's showing are four plays. The first is a comedy. A comedy entitled His Buddy. The second is a drama entitled The Black Mass. The third is another comedy, A Concert at the Madhouse. And the fourth is another drama, The Last Kiss. And as the curtain opens on the first comedy, the first thing you see is Mary, dressed as a French maid. Mary, the maid, is convinced by her partner to rob the home of her employer, played by Paula Maxa. While she is away, the employer returns earlier than expected and surprises them. 
The man pulls a knife, and the maid, full of remorse, runs away to call the police, trying to prevent the situation from getting further out of hand. The employer in turn pulls a gun out and reveals that she is in fact a criminal posing as a great lady. She and the thief discover that they used to go to the same cafes and fall in love with one another. When Mary the maid arrives with the police, the criminals declare that Mary must be crazy and send her to an asylum before continuing with the affair. It's a light-hearted piece. It's a comedy. You enjoy it. But can I have a psychology roll from people, please? 1750. 82 over 30, I'm afraid. That was an extreme success of 10 against 50 for Babette. So both Babette and Eugene. You can see that Mary and Paula have a really good chemistry on stage. There's a definite sense of complicity between the two of them. Anthony, you're a little concerned. It almost appears as if Paula is exerting some sort of hypnotic fascination over Mary, almost as if Mary's under her spell. Some sort of starstruck. A level of starstruckness. And can I have a listen roll from the, or from the audience as well, please? 73 yes. over 30. Ooh, I might have something this time. It's not hard yes. to hear this, but there is a very loud, guttural belly laugh, almost louder than the, uh, the, the, the comedy deserves, coming from a few rows in front you know, look, maybe get your opera glasses out. You can see the tall, blonde figure of Louis Latour. But the thing that strikes you is the comedy is, is not from the, the situation. His laughter is not coming from the, the clever, witty lines or the absurdity of it, but from the actual act of Mary being dragged off stage to the asylum. But before you can think any more, there's a short scene change and the curtain opens again on the Black Mass. You are presented with a luxurious mansion. Something that the Honourable Eugene Worthington Mills would probably be used to growing up in such a situation. Son of a Viscount? Well, of course. Quite. But this mansion is decorated with artwork of a perverse nature. The flesh of the bodies in twists, almost unnatural, are, well, hypnotic to look at. It's almost hard to work out exactly what they're doing. And you see lined along the walls people standing in black cloaks. And a young lady is shown in. It's Mary. She's been invited to a nobleman's home for a ball reserved for a very closed club. Once there, she's initially intoxicated by the luxury and sensuality of the evening but it slowly degenerates into the most decadent excesses. The other guests, wearing beastly masks and large cloaks, have more and more fun tormenting and humiliating the girl. Her host reveals that, as the guest of honour, she must be sacrificed to the demons of hell, and an iron maiden is unveiled in the centre of the stage. Mary is locked up in it, and the dreaded sarcophagus is engulfed in a well of flames opened up in the middle of the assembly. You can feel the heat of these flames as fans at the side of the stage turn on, pushing hot air out towards just one of the many interactive elements of the Grand Guinot Theatre. Here Eugene say, oh I say, jolly good. Can I have a spot hidden roll? <gasps> 28 over 55 success. Uh, 
That is fail for me. 46 against 40. 16 under 50, so a hard success for Eugene. Eugene and Anthony, you both notice this for different reasons. Eugene, you know Mary. You've spent a lot of time with Mary in your time in Paris. Anthony, you've been keeping a close eye on Mary, as her father has instructed. Both of you notice a worried glance that Mary seems to be giving to someone in the audience as the sarcophagus is engulfed in flames. Barbette, looking at the stage, watching the show, engaged in what you're seeing, you notice that the faces of the cast are in glee as Mary is dragged down into the pits of hell. But you notice that none is more gleeful than the face of Paula Maxa, one of the masked figures. Can I also have a psychology role? You can. For everybody. No, that was a 94 against 50. 34 under 50. Success. 83. 83 over 30. Big failure. Again, Eugene, you know Mary. And the thing that's odd to you is her screams as she is plunged into the pit of fire. They're almost too real. You know she's an actress, but she's not that good an actress. While you're contemplating this, the next show begins. It's a comedy. A middle-aged woman is released from an asylum where she has been confined for eight years. When she is reunited with her family, joy gives way to deep disillusionment. None of her relatives want to hear from her. Life has gone on without her and there is no place for her anymore. With no hope of regaining her former life, she decides to return to the asylum, where a big party is organised for her return by a group of the inmates, each more bizarre than the last, light-hearted and a little bit more heartwarming than what you've just witnessed. Can I have a combined spot hidden and listen roll, please? Nope. 73. 87. I've got an 18, which would be a hard success on the listen and uh, also a hard success on the spot hidden. So, Anthony and Eugene, you are distracted by sounds coming from the booth next to you. The young couple that are there seem to be, well, shall we say enjoying themselves a little too freely. As much as this is Paris in the 1920s, there are times and places for this sort of thing. It's a little distracting, actually, as well. And, Anthony, as you're looking at the stage, you think one of those inmates might be Mary. It's a lot of makeup, a lot of costume there as well, but you think that might be her? Well, she must be okay. Barbette, you hear, just at the edge of your hearing, screams. Almost an echo of what you heard during the Black Mass. Can't quite place where they're coming from. It doesn't necessarily seem to be coming from the stage. And as you're looking around, trying to piece where they're coming from, you see... The figure of a man leaving the auditorium. You recognise that man with your hard success. It's Louis Latour, the doctor. And we move on to the final play. The Last Kiss. A young woman, played by Paula Maxa, goes to the apartment of her former fiancé. Following an argument, she had disfigured him with vitriol, and against all odds, he managed to clear her during the trial before asking her to join him to talk. During their reunion, he promises her his forgiveness and eternal love. 
He only asked for one last kiss. The young woman is in tears, confused in excuses and accept. While they embrace, the man reveals to her that this was only a trap to allow him to accomplish his revenge and slowly pours a bottle of vitriol on her face. Can I have a spot hidden roll from everybody, please? That's a success for me. Oh my word, I'm having absolute shocker i'm not anthony's having an absolute shocker spot hidden no fail 64 over 55 for me ordinary success of 25 against 40 but if i need to again i can spend five points of luck for hard a regular success is cool. fine as much as i should be encouraging you to spend all of your <laughs> luck now a regular success i'm is just fine. not used to characters with a high luck that's my thing i'm just like you can have some <laughs> luck and you can have some luck anthony this is too real. You see as Paula Max's skin sloughs off her face where the acid is poured on. Can you make me a constitution roll, please? Oh, this is, uh, this is crazy stuff. Oh, I rolled a 41 over a 40. You feel lightheaded. This is, oh, uh, oh no, this is not right. It it just makes your head spin. It's just not. Oh, it's it's not pleasant. Not pleasant at all. I kind of reach out. I'll, I'll I'll put a hand on either Eugene or Barbet, whoever's closer. Just going. Oh 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 oh. This is. Uh, oh, are you seeing that? Eugene and Barbet, you're enraptured by this show, but actually, if you look carefully, and Eugene, you've probably mm. seen this one before, you can see where the fake skin over Paula's makeup is peeled away. It's very convincing makeup, and it's very impressive with the speed in which she can cause this fake skin over this makeup to disappear. And you can see how some people, if they're not particularly aware, might believe this to be real. But it, what a dramatic end to an evening of theatre. Can I ask everybody... Give me a sanity check, please. And can I ask Anthony to roll with penalty? Oh, I just <laughs> rolled. Do you know what? I've rolled over my sanity anyway. I've got such low sanity. 38 under 50. I succeed. Okay. Yeah. A narrow success of 57 against 60, but a success nonetheless. I've got a 59 over a 45. Anthony, you've seen enough to think that something's not quite right here. This is this really what passes for theatre nowadays? And this is this is not sitting well with you. Please lose one point of sanity. How do you react to losing that sanity point? Uh, I probably do the, the, the a very kind of overindulgent, probably slightly loud. Like there's people going at it in the next kind of you know, box to us. <laughs> I'm sitting there with these two wonderful but very different people. I'm looking at them to see if they're having the same reaction and maybe a bit too loud. I'm going, oh, what the, what the hell is this kind of thing? I thought we were coming to see a bit of theatre, not the, it's like torture, but like gruesome. What the hell? It's like a day in the office here. I need to, I come here for entertainment. Are you seeing this? Is anybody seeing this? And if, you know, he, he almost just kind of verbal diarrheas until um, someone probably kicks him or gives him a sharp look from one of the, in the audience or something. Your cries of protestation are drowned out as the cast of the four shows appears on stage for the grand salute. And as they take a bow, it's not hard for you to see that Mary isn't there. Paula takes her bow, star of the shows. Andre Delord comes on, 
takes a bow as the author of the conceit at the madhouse. But Mary isn't there. And the chatting crowd, laughing, hollering, they start to flood out into the streets of Paris. And you're left in your booth. What would you like to do? That was a jolly good show, wasn't it, chaps? Technically, it was stunning. Technically, uh, made my stomach turn. I mean, what the hell was that with the face melting off and, uh... I mean, come on. I, I, I thought we were coming to see a bit of culture, and you know we're in Paris, France here, and you, you, we, well, we watching people, freaking burning and melting and dying and sarcophagi, and oh man, what the, the best entertainment of this evening was in the box next to us, if you know what I mean, huh? Yes, one can have quite a great time in these boxes. It's true. Perhaps you'd like a brandy. Monsieur Contralto, you uh, you don't look at all well. Yeah, now we're talking my language. Let's, uh, let's get ourselves a little drinky drink. And uh, we got to go and congratulate Mary? She wasn't on stage. Yes. That was strange. Mm. Uh, she wasn't feeling mm. well with all the fumes. Smoke was a bit strong. Yeah. Very. Special effects can be dangerous to, to mm. a performer. What, you can get hurt doing this on a stage? I thought it was all acting and uh, pretending and oh, stuff. Oh, yes. Accidents do happen. Things fall backstage. You don't have to tell me. In my line of work, accidents happen to people all the time. I just didn't realize in the acting world, it was like a thing. I thought just a bit of dancing around, people saying some lines. You know what actors are like. As you make your way out of the, the booth, down to the gallery, down to the foyer, you start seeing a few people, a few actresses and actors that you recognize from stage are leaving through the stage door, back in their street clothes as well. They wave at the doorkeeper as they head off. And after a little while, Paula exits as well. Gives you a little wave as she heads off. Oh, hey, uh, Paula, Paula, uh, we, were, we were hoping to catch you for a, qu- a quick minute. Oh, oh y- yes, I-, I hope that you enjoyed the show. It was, uh, <laughs> I think it went pretty well. And didn't Mary do well in her performances? Yeah, no. yeah, yeah. It was great. I'm going to nudge Eugene and quite just go ask ask her where ask her where Mary is. It's quite a marvelous show, as always, darling. You are simply exquisite. Uh, but we were rather uh, bemused that Mary didn't come out to take her bow. She did such a wonderful job. Is she all right? Did she get overcome by the fumes or trip and fall somewhere? Oh well, I uh, I don't know. Uh, I I assume she's already gone. Um, you know what it is. First night nerves. Maybe she's uh. Yeah, overcome. Maybe. I wouldn't know anything about first night nerves. Uh, she she wasn't in her dressing room when uh, when I got off stage, and uh, and her things weren't there. I assume she must have taken them with her. <laughs> of course. What you need to do is you need to check with Ralph on the door. Uh, Ralph, has uh, Madame Mademoiselle Riley left? Ralph checks his list. No, Mademoiselle. Uh, she is uh, not signed out. She must still be in the building. Oh, Ralph. Uh... Do, do you you check everybody out? You know everybody's comings and goings. Uh, oui, monsieur. It's uh, health and safety. If this place were to burn down, what we do not want is for people to be lost inside or people to be uh, out in the street that we're looking for. It's standard safety procedure. Mary is still inside, is what you're saying? Uh, she has not passed through here. I would have known. I've been watching the door. Okay. Eugene, uh, Babette, we 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 going to go back in, go and find Mary? Uh, yes, definitely. And uh, if she does pass through while uh, we're on our search, if we perhaps should miss her in the corridor, could you tell her that we're looking for her? 
Oh, of course, mademoiselle. I will uh, happily do so. And uh, he sips from his beer that he's drinking as well. Paula opens the stage door for you and says, uh, I wouldn't spend too much time backstage. They are a little... uh, a little delicate about revealing the secrets of the Grand Guignol, and uh, we've had a couple of thefts. Items have gone missing. Uh, we think fans, exuberant fans, must be trying to get their little piece of history, as it were. Uh, but I shall leave you. I must. Uh, I have a prior engagement that I must attend to. But uh, bon chance finding Mary. Bon chance. Bon chance Merci yourself. Paula leaves the theatre. And you see that Ralph signs her out, as she does. The backstage of the Grand Guignol is not as ornate as the foyer and the auditorium. A lovely tiled Belle Epoque floor is laid out, but the wallpaper is a little drab and a little damp in places. You can see the bustle of technicians moving set down the staircase and a couple of actresses in uh, street clothes, again, push past you in the narrow corridors trying to get out of the theatre as well. One thing it is easy to find are the dressing rooms. And one advantage you find here is that the dressing rooms have names on. It doesn't take you long to find Mary's dressing room. Mary's dressing room also has Paula's name on as well. And from what you inferred earlier, they share a dressing room. Bet Paula's not too happy about that. Robert's feeling quite wistful and a bit melancholy as they walk through the corridors because this was her world once and it isn't now. Knockity knock knock. Mary, you in there? There's no reply. I appreciate your subtlety as always, Anthony. Hey, I just uh, opening doors, meeting people. So that's what I love doing best. We just going to let ourselves in, right? Because we got to check on Mary. Maybe let me go first. Try the handle on the door. It's unlocked. Slowly poke my head in just to make sure she's not asleep or unconscious or something just curled up on a chair somewhere. The dressing room you enter into is a small world of chaos in its own. You can see where costumes have been taken off and put into the corner, ready for washing for tomorrow's performances as well. There are two large mirrors with candles either side and cards and flowers addressed from devoted fans to Paula and to Mary. But Mary's side appears sparse compared to Paula's. Paula has left a a makeup box and she's left a, a coat on the side as well. Mary's desk appears clear. There doesn't seem to be anything there as well. And while it's obvious that there are no outside clothes of Mary's. You saw what she was wearing. Can I have a spot hidden from you, please? Regular success. Hanging on the edge of a dressing screen, you see a headband with a large white ostrich feather. Bad. That's strange. Wouldn't go out without being properly attired. What? Was that a regular success or a hard success? Sorry. Regular regular success that's fine so uh what 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 are we thinking she's uh she's gone out in a rush or she's been called away or something well she didn't go out there's nothing like a purse or a coat or anything like that here 
if you want to have a look around, it'll take you a little bit of time to do so, but there is no purse, no coat, no shoes. Hmm. Well, she must still be here somewhere. Perhaps she's visiting a colleague. Perhaps she's in another dressing room, uh, having a drink. Wouldn't be uncommon after her first performance. Still wouldn't explain why she didn't come out on stage for her bow, though. No. But she didn't leave the theatre, so... Must be around here somewhere, what? Perhaps we should find the stage manager. Jolly good idea. Yeah, maybe we go banging on doors. She she might be in somebody else's room, you know, with the, the kids in the box next to her. She might be in somebody else's dressing room. Maybe just, you know, celebrating. All sorts of celebrating? Yeah, yeah. I'm going to, like, yeah, run out the room and just kind of knock on the next dressing room door. Entree? Uh, bonjour. Uh, je m'appelle Anthony uh, Contralto. Uh, où est la Mary? Next door, Mary. <laughs> oh, it's okay. I speak English. I, I'm sure I can answer for you. No, um, no I speak Mary. French. Oh. I could, uh, no, okay, okay. Uh, yeah, Mary from next door. Mary from next door. I, I haven't seen her. She uh, she wasn't on stage. Hey, hey, um, hey, Louise, have you seen Mary? No, I haven't seen Mary. But um, I, I, I did have a chat with Joseph, uh, the the stage manager. He said that uh, he said that they've been clearing out some stuff, and uh, he saw somebody carrying some boxes out of uh, Mary's room, Mary's dressing room during the show. So may, maybe they're they're relocating her to a different room. I don't know. Yeah, which way would we find as Joseph? My friend uh, wants to speak to Joseph. Uh, I just want to make sure we go in the right direction, you know. Oh, oh, yes. Uh, he, he'll be. Uh, he'll be backstage. If he'll be, he'll be probably on the stage, uh, seeing the dismantling of the set. Oh, okay. Uh, is it normal for people to just like not be here and all their stuff be gone? No, I mean we. I mean, at the end of the day, we all go home. But uh, why? Is, is, is he not left? Ah, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. It's all it's okay. It's all good. It's all good. You just enjoy yourself. Oh, I will do. You too. I'll go back to these guys and, and tell them about Joseph probably being on stage. Well, off we go then. No point standing around. There is something very strange about this. It's just the theatre, darling. As you walk to the backstage area, can I have a dodge roll from everybody, please? Oh, my word. <laughs> I shouldn't have said that thing about things fall from the rafters, should I? <laughs> that was probably my fault. Not with the way I'm rolling as well. Hard success, 15 under 32. Success of 20 against 35. I don't know. It's super duper failure. I've got 73 versus <laughs> 12. Why is my dodge 12? You, you, need, you need new dice, Newman. Yeah. So, I, I, um, so... Anthony, tell me how you're almost hit by a sandbag, falling sandbag, as you come walk onto the stage. Um, <laughs> I'm probably kind of like walking out as I kind of like pull a cigar uh, out and I've got my cigar clipper. But as I do it, I just kind of clumsily kind of like flap it in my hands and it just kind of drops to the floor. And I probably just bend down and lean to the side to pick it up as the sandbag just slams probably exactly where I was standing. Uh, and makes me uh, need to change my pants. And as this falls and <laughs> slams onto the stage, 
you hear a voice. You bloody fool! What are you doing, Oya? Get off the stage! It's not clear. We are we are dropping the flies. Me you, bloody fool! Do you have fool. a death wish, sir? Hey, that's fine, cool, huh? You wanna watch yourself who you're talking to, you son of a... What are you doing throwing these friggin' sandbags around? Well, you what are you doing on the you stage? You to my face, huh? I will say this is... And this tall, gangly man comes out. <laughs> he's he's quite burly. He's quite well-built. He's quite heavy-set. And he, he stares down. What's your... Actually, can you make me a size roll? We're going to have a compo- opposed oh size roll. I'm quite a big guy. Oh, no. I've rolled 84, and my size is 75. <laughs> so this gentleman has a size of 70 and has rolled 35. A hard success on his size <laughs> roll. So this is not necessarily about how big you are, but this is how intimidating yeah, you are. Yeah, yeah. You're probably still stooped. You're probably just bringing yourself up. You're still a bit shocked. And this man just looms over you and says, This is an active working area, monsieur. This is not for the tourists. If you wish to see the actresses or the actors, please return to the corridor. Mm. I do not know why you're on this stage getting in my way. Okay, okay. I've screwed in my monocle at this point. Just like, I say, we're just looking for Mary Riley, old chap. And we were told that we could find her maybe by speaking to you. No offense intended. Wonderful production, by the way. Uh, but if you could give us any assistance, my uh, poor American friend here just didn't quite understand uh, the, the rules guiding the theater. That's all. Can I have a suitable social role, please? A charm, a persuade, a fast talk? Probably not an intimidate. <laughs> no, I wasn't trying to intimidate him. I, I didn't uh, think Go so. for charm. <laughs> okay. Oh, that is a 14 under 60. Fantastic. He comes down a little bit. His body language becomes a little less antagonistic. He softens his... No, I understand how it is with these Americans. Uh, mm. Not at all. Mary, yes, I... Uh, I have not seen her recently. I assume that she was relocating to another room. I saw uh, that gentleman, the uh, the doctor, with uh, a box of hers uh, leaving the dressing room. Uh, I don't know why she's not carrying things herself, but uh, you know how these artistic types are. Can't risk the hands, you know, that sort of thing. Ah, natural more. Any idea where this other room might be? We haven't seen anything with her name on it. Uh, boof, I do not know. Um, the best person to talk to would probably be uh, the doctor who is carrying the boxes, but uh, I have to say that uh, all of the other dressing rooms are occupied. She's wanting to cram in with somebody else, but uh, I do not see why. She, Her and Paula, they seem to get on very well. As the leading ladies of the uh, Grand Guignol this season, they are uh, well suited to each other. No? Did you happen to see where she went after the end of her... Uh... Uh, sacrifice. That was quite clever, by the way. All the smoke and ah. flames and everything. That was marvellous. Absolutely yes, marvellous. Uh, we, we pride ourselves on our theatricals, uh, theatricalities here. Uh, that would have uh, gone down into the, the basement. She would have uh, exited the uh, the Iron Maiden and made her way mm. back up here. Well, she didn't come out, that's all, for the, the bows and sort of thank you very muches and all that sort of thing. We're just wanting to make sure she's alright, that's all. That is odd. I think it might be worth our while having a look in the basement, making sure she's not still down there. If you wouldn't mind, awfully. Perhaps a lift has malfunctioned or something. Uh, we could have a look. Well, uh, he walks to the centre of the stage and he uh, holds up his hand to the people on the uh, fly bars and they, they hold still for a second. And he uh, pulls out a small latch key, bends down, clicks open the trapdoor, which 
falls inwards, and he looks down into the basement. It's dark down there. Uh, I cannot see any problems down there. Uh, obviously, we shall go down and have a look ourselves, take torches, but the mechanism seems to work, and uh, he clicks his fingers, and another man starts pulling on a uh, a rope, and you can see this chain descend from the ceiling. And you recognise this chain as the one that was holding on to the Iron Maiden as it was lowered down. Um, and the chain, he tugs on the chain a couple of times, and it seems sturdy, it's still in place. The Iron Maiden would have been uh, detached at the bottom. We have a mechanism that when it goes, when it's the floor, the latch opens up, the chain comes released, and that's when the chain is pulled up, the Iron Maiden's gone. Uh, let us head a look into the basement and see what we can find, no? See, make sure everything is okay. Thanks awfully, old chap. And he leads you down a staircase. You head down into the basement of the Grand Guineau Theatre. The church that was, that is now the theatre, still has the vaulted crypt. And where there would have been rows of coffins are now boxes of props and sets and costume. As you descend into the darkness, Joseph Bouquet, stage manager, pulls out an electric torch, and the dim glow illuminates the room down here. As he swings across, you see, lying in the centre of the floor, a desiccated form, shriveled. The skin is waxy. And this figure has a look of absolute horror and terror on its face. And Joseph looks at it and says, Oh, the technicians, they do not put anything away down in this place. And he wanders over and picks up this mannequin. <laughs> this is from the acid bath scene. This needs to go in the box over there. Uh, you, Mr. Anthony, American. And he throws it at you. This oh. life, uh, this lifelike mannequin. It's light. It's not heavy. And now you look at it close up, you can see that actually, yes, it's it's wax and it's it's paper mache, but it's bloody realistic. You oh. put it on that pile over there with the others, and as you look over, you can see a pile of skeletons and other bodies, and oh, corpses. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, but uh, since I'm a bit higher up the chain these days, I don't tend to do the dragging around of the bodies and that. But okay, come, I'll uh, come on, Anthony. I'll I'm sure you have, yes. You have plenty of experience. <laughs> I'm going to drag it like the only way Anthony knows how to drag a body uh, so arms under the arms and just even though it's light I'm just going to be like okay uh, yeah, you're right and just kind of like dragging it across the floor there's uh, no concrete for the shoes I'm afraid <laughs> <laughs> you look like you've done this before Monsieur Contralto hey just uh, you know when it's uh, you got you got friends man, a little bit too much or someone needs to be uh, taken care of yeah, you gotta you gotta know how to move a body, a, a friend. Fascinating. And as your eyes acclimatize to the dark, dank room down here, you see standing in the centre of the hall, underneath the trapdoor that you can see above you, is that iron maiden. It looms in the darkness, about six feet tall. And you can see that the door is ever so slightly ajar on it. 
uh, should we uh, just uh, hey uh, um, Joseph, what's uh, what's going on with this thing, uh, Joseph? Uh, oh, this uh, this is the uh, the Iron Maiden. It is uh, where you last saw your friend. Okay. Uh, can I like? Can I open it a bit more? Can I? Absolutely. As you open it, you realise that it it's made of wood. I'm going to try and pull the door open just so we can get a proper clear view inside. Make sure there's nobody left inside, hiding or whatever. Um, the the inside of the Iron Maiden is empty. There's nothing in there. The interior has been painted to look like iron. There are wooden spikes, but actually you feel them, they're, they're blunted. There's nothing dangerous, nothing deadly about this at all. It's almost a bit of an anticlimax after the dramatic scene that you saw it in on stage. And the hinges are working okay. It, it kind of it swings well. And the, the base, there's, there's nothing wrong with the base at all. Absolutely. Seems solid. Seems intact. No damage at all. <laughs> Pretend I am maiden, huh? It's a metaphor for my mother. She looked scary and uh, you thought she would have killed you, but I tell you what, she had a heart of gold. She didn't have a, she didn't have a spike in her. But, uh... Oh, okay. Surprising, uh, considering her offspring. Yeah, you, you talking about my sister. I know what you're saying. Janice, my God. Now she is an Iron Maiden. And Joseph hands you the flashlight and says, I have a few more things to deal with, but uh, feel free to have a look for your friend down here. If she did decide to take a little nap, <laughs> or maybe she's curled up in one of the uh, set pieces. I do not know. But if you need anything at all, you can find me upstairs. And he heads back up. Thanks much, Lee. Well, chaps, shall we get to looking then? Uh, yeah. Uh, do you, uh, do, do, do you want the flashlight or? I, um. Well, we can't have. Pull out my light. We can't have you going first. You might pass out. See any more mannequins. That's not what that was. All right, I just uh, you you yeah yeah. All right, Eugene, I go. Well, you go first. You brave soul, you. I'm I'm quite used to backstage areas. Please give me the flashlight. I'd be happy to take the lead on this. Pass it over. So can I have spot hidden rolls from everybody, please? Who is searching? That's okay. All of us. Oh wait, sixty nine. Yes. I've got a hard success, but I could make it an extreme if necessary with two points. A hard success is going to get you something. An extreme success will find you a little bit more. Okay, two points of luck being spent. Can I just quickly uh, remind me what the other two got as well? Sorry. I got a fail. 69 over 50, I failed. Nice. Nice. Um, The darkness in this room... Coupled with the cluttered nature, the piles of boxes and props and set, it's very difficult to actually find anything that you're looking for. Although one thing that you are aware of, uh, Eugene and Anthony, is that it would be very difficult for somebody to crawl through these spaces and, and fall asleep. It makes sense that if Mary was down here, then Mary must have gone through uh, the, the stairs up to the theatre. However, 
Babette, as you're looking through, you see an archway in the wall. This is not unnatural, an unknown or unheard of. There are lots of arches um, and columns from the old crypt. But on this arch is a faint carving. Arrête, c'est ici l'Empire de la Mort. And everybody who hears that, can you give me a no roll, please? No. I got a 24 under 61. Oh, I got a 26 under 76. Ordinary success of 59 against 64. This translates as stop. Here lies the realm of death. And you all recognize these words. These are the traditional inscriptions of the catacombs of Paris. Beneath this archway lies the sprawling tunnels that crisscross beneath the ancient city. The hallowed halls of the dead, where lie osseries collecting the bones of the victims of the French Revolution, of Le Terreur, and of the many, many, many graveyards that have been reclaimed over the years. Can everybody give me a power roll, please? 45 under 50, regular success. 15 under 35, success. Extreme success. success. Oh, eight against 60. You're all rolling well now. <laughs> you all have... Feel that slight shiver in your spine. You, you understand what the catacombs are. Although nowadays much more benign than their nefarious pasts as well. Barbette, you had an extreme success on your spot hidden earlier. Absolutely. She knows she's scarier than any ghoul that's down there, as you... I'm sure her pupils would say. <laughs> you notice that in front of this archway is a large wardrobe, and in front of that are a few stacked boxes. But as you peer around the wardrobe, you think that actually the, the back of the wardrobe might be missing. And as you pull the door open slightly, you can see that actually this, this wardrobe has a false back. So it's a hinged door that descends down into the catacombs. It's very well disguised. Anybody just casually looking wouldn't have noticed that there is a passageway here. It just looks like another pile of set and props. And the dust on the outside of the wardrobe gives the impression it's not been moved for a long time. But in the dust on the floor of the wardrobe, you can see marks as if something has been dragged inside. Here, look, look at this, everyone. Uh, drag marks, track marks. This wardrobe with a with a false back. It 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 must be used for a magic trick or a, a vanishing sequence. But uh, if it's been placed here deliberately, somebody is trying to hide something, or or, or make a an entrance that they don't want anyone to see. Yeah, a lot of old bootleggers like used to do stuff like this. Uh, it, it could be, it could be used for a number of things, you know. But uh, you, you got it open. Do I have it open, keeper? You do. It's not locked. And Babette will shine the torch inside. The passageway inside is narrow, and you can see where the carved stone and the brickwork merge. But glistening a little further inside, you can see the yellow 
of aged bone. And you can see the chamber opens up into what appears to be an ossuary, similar to the ossuaries in the catacombs in the Place d'Enfort Rochereau, which are quite often visited by the curious tourists. As a native Parisian yourself, you have a fair idea of where the more famous parts of the catacombs lie. But you're not aware of any touristy areas or areas that are visited frequently around Pigalle. This is an ossuary that may or may not have been recorded before. The miles of sprawling tunnel, very hard to navigate, very hard to map. We should be careful if we're going in here, gentlemen. People get lost in this sort of environment. Eugene is looking a little tense. He's now remembering his time in the war as a very young man, very young man, and being trapped underground at one point in a tunnel. Okay, uh... uh... We we just uh, we go down here. We we stick together, and uh, we we just keep a track. We just make a note. Uh, which way we're going, directions we turn. We we just make sure if we can't find a way out the other way, we got to make sure we know a way out back this way. Uh, Keeper, are there any ropes or anything around? I would imagine there would be something similar in a theater basement. Make me a luck roll, please. Oh God. Success, 17 under 50. There are many ropes, and you find a nice, thick, sturdy length of rope, about 30 foot in length. So we can use these, attach one at the end here, and follow through, hopefully prevent us from getting too lost. Take some extra as well. At the very least, we'll be able to find a way back to it. Absolutely. I, I haven't written that Babette would be carrying lipstick, and I don't know whether that would be kind of socially appropriate at the time for a, a woman as a bit conservative as she is. But would you say she I could be carrying lipstick and then she could like write an arrow on the wall as, as they move? I see no reason why you couldn't be carrying lipstick. But remember, you are in a theatre as well. And there likely would be some boxes ah, of makeup down yes, here too. Yes, absolutely. So with yes. Eugene's successful luck roll, I will say that <laughs> uh, there is definitely makeup or lipstick available to you. Would would we be able to find other torches or, or gas lamps? or? There's nothing down here in the basement. Joseph Bouquet may very well have some equipment that he can lend you, if you were to ask him nicely. Uh, Eugene, uh, um, Bobette, do, do we need another torch or something, or we just we we we, we got to go? Is it a matter of urgency now with with Mary? I think the more torches, the better, given where we are, and uh, yes, something to write our directions on the wall so that we don't have to remember them. Get some grease paint. We can put arrows to say which way we've gone. Grease paint, torches. I'm on it. Give me a give me a give me a sec. Give me a hot second. I'll I'll just kind of trot back to Joseph, if he's still there, or or to whoever I find. Um, so Joseph is still on the stage. They've now succeeded in removing the 
the fly bars they've now rehanging new set on and joseph looks at you and says ah l'american what can i do for you have you found your missing girl Ah, the Frenchman. Uh, no, we have not found our missing girl. Look, uh, we're going to need a few torches. I'm going to need some grease paint. Um, d- d- basically, we're, we're going to do this job for you because we got to find this uh, find this girl. Uh, you know, um... Torches? Grease paint? What? You're putting on one of these shadow plays from the Chat Noir? <laughs> ah, you are you Americans. <laughs> I suppose you are. Um, you are still looking down there. It's not taking you that long, is it? No, there's a door down there. We gone. Hey, listen, pal. We we found a fake door down there. This is part of your your theater. We it goes out into the catacombs. You know, a fake door to the catacombs. What do you think? I'm a tourist. What? What do you know about this? What? No, no. I do not know about any fake door to the catacombs. Well, then give me some torches and give me some grease paint, and I'll show you. Go on, then. I will do. Well, then I will do. I, I think you, I think I'd like a roll here as well. I'd like you to tell me what roll. Mm, I think this is a. Um, is it is it intimidate, or is it like? I don't know. It doesn't quite feel like aggressive, but I think he's trying to give it. It's more like a polite intimidate, like a yeah. like there's a bit of a, cla- a culture clash. Intimidate, I think, is is what's going on here. Um. Oh, okay. Uh, that's a 42 and uh, 62. You can see that he doesn't quite believe you. But you can see that he's wanting to humour you. So he heads to the stage manager's booth and he grabs another torch and there's a small bucket of white paint which is used for marking out steps at the back of the stage so that people do not trip. And he picks that up and says, Is this greasy enough for you, monsieur? Yeah, I guess so. Uh, it's, uh, it's for my bed back there. Um, yeah, d- d- give me that torch. Look, you come down with me and I'm going to show you. Very well. Lead on, Macduff. What'd you call me? <laughs> it's a theatre thing. Do not worry. I ain't worried about you. You're the one who's going to need to be worrying in a minute. You keep swinging names like that around, huh? And, uh, yeah, I'll completely misunderstand and then lead him uh, lead him down. <laughs> you lead Joseph back down to the catacombs. Uh, Eugene and Babette, what are you doing while you're waiting? I think Babette is probably looking at these drag marks and trying to work out exactly what's going on and probably talking to Eugene and, and, and just trying to work out what might have happened here you follow the drag marks back from the wardrobe and find that they originate from the iron maiden whatever caused these took something from the iron maiden and pulled it along the ground you can see as you're looking a couple of sequins that seem to have come loose in the drag marks on the floor imperceptibly glinting in the light covered in dust and you remember the dress that mary was wearing during the ill-fated play sequin. Mr. Worthington Mills, I do believe we are on our way to finding her. Not in a good way, I don't think. Not at all. She must have been injured somehow, but then somebody has taken her, but why wouldn't they take her back upstairs? I don't know, but I don't 
Going underground isn't great either way. Are you quite well, monsieur? Just uh, remembering things, that's all. That's quite fine, quite fine. All good. No need to worry, just, you know, tying off a rope to the end of something so we can follow it through and very much not making eye contact with Babette. <laughs> with this, Anthony and Joseph Bouquet return to the basement. Where is this old to the catacombs that you have found then, Monsieur Lemerican? Well, it is right here, and I'll flash the flashlight on it. Like, Babette, Eugene, I, I got Joseph here. He's got some grease paints. Come on, come on, come with me. And I'll take him. D d d so is, uh, is Eugene and Babette, are they actually in the tunnel? Uh, because th And that's where we're going into, isn't it? I think we've kind of doubled back on ourselves because we've been looking to see where the drag marks came from. They mm -hmm. came from the Iron Maiden and we found the sequins. So we're probably like, kneeling on the floor or something at this point looking at the track marks yeah. I would think Joseph peers through the wardrobe Mon dieu how far does this go in how long has this been here you mean you don't know about this monsieur bouquet no this is this is not uh, this is not on any of the plans of the theater this is not in any of the records that I've seen and I know this is an old church but I need to tell Monsieur de Lord about this. Well, clearly, it was created as a, a way to get bodies down from the, the funeral service down into the catacombs so that they wouldn't have to be taken through the streets. But how has this but not been would... noticed before? I don't know. I don't know. But I have to say, Monsieur Bouquet, I am not impressed by the standard of care that you have towards your performers and your visitors. You've already nearly seriously injured my friend here, Monsieur Contralto. And if we don't find her, or if we find her injured in any way, there will be consequences. Do you understand me? Madame, if you find her in these catacombs, then she is not on theatre property. Then she cannot be said to have been injured on the theatre property. I think you have very flimsy case. What a crock of shit. I just, come on. What the hell are you talking about? Oh. She was on your stage and then she disappeared and she went down. What? We should be reporting you for a missing persons. What? How do uh, we know you perhaps, haven't got her somewhere? Perhaps, chaps, we should have this discussion later. Perhaps find Miss Riley first. Well, I have to say, you're on your own for this. You have brought me down here. You have shown me this hole in the wall. I need to tell the, uh, Monsieur Delord about this, but uh, I am having no part in your finding. Bon chance in finding your missing girl. And with that, he stalks upstairs. Yeah, thanks for your help. Bon chance. And you hear him shout, merde, down the stairs. Yeah, merde to you too. <laughs> Babette looks after him with the, the cold look which has terrified a thousand girls of the corps de ballet. So, uh, grease paint. Yes, and ropes. How, uh, Bobette, uh, Eugene, how, how worried do we need to be right now, do you think? I mean, I like I deal with missing persons quite a lot of time, but not, not in this way. 
And I'll, I'll just open I'd my jacket. I'd rather say you're the ones making them go missing, aren't you? Exactly, exactly. I'll just open my jacket a little bit, and I've got, like, um, basically, I've got my revolver there. Uh, and I'm just going to kind of, like, tap it and just say, like, how worried do we need to be? Well, when there's been dragging into somewhere underground, pointing at the drag marks, normally not a good sign. But I'm a lot less worried now I've seen that revolver. Okay, just check in. Didn't want to surprise nobody. Okay, uh, torches at the ready. Peyton at the ready. Let's go. And you head into the catacombs. The small tunnel opens up into a large ossuary. Floor to ceiling, bones line these walls. Human bones, aged and yellowing. Dusty from years of neglect. A multitude of empty eye sockets stare down at you from the high domed ceiling as you creep through the tunnels. Can I have a listen roll from everybody, please? Forty-eight over thirty, that's a fail for Eugene. AC over 45, that's a fail for Anthony. 62 over 60, which is a narrow fail, and again, happy to spend a bit of luck if we need to hear whatever we're hearing. <laughs> that is very much up to you. Yeah, yeah, it's only two points. For an ordinary success, I'll do that. Your footsteps echo in the stone passageways. But Barbette, you hear a sound it sounds like a sobbing noise coming from somewhere in the tunnels. It's hard to pinpoint exactly where, and with just a regular success, can't quite triangulate where it is. But it definitely seems to be coming from ahead of you. There's nothing behind you other than the basement. She holds up a hand. I hear something crying. Can anyone else hear that? No. No, I, I can't. Can't hear that. Hmm. If you say it's there, I'm willing to believe it's there. What, like crying like, uh, like, a, like a girl crying? Like a sobbing crying? I'm not at all certain. Just somebody in distress. Let's go. It could, that could be Mary. Yes. Uh, Yes, let's... You continue down a passageway. It narrows, as you do. And on the sides of the walls, low arches lead off into smaller tunnels still. Make me another listen roll. See whether you can pinpoint where Mary might be. All right. Oh, 11 under 30. Oh, <laughs> 97, horrible fail. Barbette, the echoes of the cries are, are distressing. And they almost seem to be completely surrounding you. You can't exactly say where, but they seem to be coming from all angles. Eugene, you think they're slightly louder through a tunnel on your left? This way, I think. I got a hard success, Keeper. Do I hear that as well? 
you do and you're 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 pretty confident that eugene is right in this regard okay yeah eugene yeah that's right go on you lead the way we got this eugene is out in front so no one can see how stressed out being underground is making him right now after 30 feet of exploring the tunnels your rope runs out We, well, we... we've got paint at least, Miss Babbitt. Yes. And she takes off a glove and uh, dips a forefinger into the uh, the white paint and paints a large arrow in the way that they're going on the wall. You continue through the tunnels, the faint light casting long shadows as you pass through archways, past bones... The bodies here appear to be more carelessly thrown about, rather than the neat decoration of the ossuary. Here and there are piles of bones from multiple bodies, broken, cracked with age. And as you follow the sounds of the sobbing, you come to a junction. To the left is a small cavern, and to the right is a passageway. But the thing that strikes you about the cavern is that sitting in the centre of it is a desk. A wooden writing desk. Well, I've heard about artistic types needing to get away from it all, but this is a bit much, don't you say? You saying there's some looney tune down here, like sitting and writing or painting or whatever? What the hell? Well, it would certainly match the vibe, wouldn't it, of the uh, productions? Yeah. Freaky. Freaky deaky. Mary! There's no reply. Is there anything on the desk? There is. On the desk, you can see a bundle of papers. And as you enter into this cavern, you see there's more than just the desk. There are a couple of tables and chairs at the back, and on the tables are a row of skulls. And in the centre is a phrenology head, glistening in its porcelain whiteness compared to the yellow ageing of the skulls. But as you look along the row of skulls, you see that some of them are fresher than others. Some of them, the bone is bleached. Some of them still have remnants of tissue attached. The skulls progressively get larger as you move along until you reach the skull at the end. The cranium is slightly more elongated. The canine teeth are slightly more pronounced. The jaw is larger and stronger. And next to it is a pair of calipers. It appears that somebody may have been measuring these skulls. Is this some kind of ape, perhaps, from the zoo? This has got to be one of them stage props for the, the creepy show, you know? Yes, possibly. I think, given the situations here, this skull... Could I have a sanity roll from people? Yeah. <laughs> 
64 over 50, that's a fail. 19 over 44, that's success. 51 against 60, that's a success for me. For Anthony and Barbette, this is not quite right, but you, you think you can justify that it's yeah maybe a stage prop but it's still it gives you the it gives you the willies there lose one point of sanity eugene you've seen the horrors of war you've seen bodies on the battlefield you've seen what happens after the crows pick the flesh from the skulls you see what happens after the worms eat the eyes you see what happens after the beetles demolish the flesh you see what's left and this it's like nothing you've ever seen before. This mockery of a human skull almost laughs at you. And you take 1d4 sanity loss. Should I roll that? Yes, please. Three. How do you react to seeing this? I think I sort of startle back and that young 20-year-old lieutenant in who's still living, being sequestered away in my brain for the past decade or so, uh, is terrified. And so I think I just let out a low sort of moan and I stumble backwards away from the skulls as much as possible in this cavern. Eugene, it's all right. It's okay. You're right. You're right there. It's not natural, is it? Not not human. What the thing? No. The wit? The barbette? It's just a skull. It's nothing to be afraid of. It can't hurt you, Mr. Worthington Wells. It's just a prop or some kind of antique. It, it's real, though, isn't it? it? It's something. It's not well, plaster. Well, it must or... be an animal. Yeah, it's probably like a monkey from the zoo, like Bob was saying. It, 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 it's, it's all good. Sort of shake my head, get myself back under control a bit. Here, sit down for a moment. It's, 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 it's the human skulls you should be worried about, Eugene. Huh? Look at look at this. Huh? See, these ones here, these are yellow, these are old, right? But these ones here, these whiter ones, they're fresh little, you know. I, I'd seen a few of these, yeah? Before you take a hammer and you crush them down, this is what they look like. Nice and white and bleached and bone, huh? I've seen plenty of human skulls, Tony. I, I know what they look like. Just... Saying, just trying to normalize the situation here. You can't normalize death. I sit down fairly heavily. Well, it does come to us all in the end, and we aren't going to find her, and we aren't going to help her if we're jumping at shadows. So I suggest we take a moment to collect ourselves. You sit down at the desk, Eugene. Mm -hmm. The oppressive atmosphere around here is, is dark. It's reminding you of those dark times of the war. There are a couple of other chairs if the others want to join you as well. Definitely. I'll, I'll stay standing, but um, just kind of... <coughs> close to these guys, but just kind of stalking around, just keeping an eye. Restless. Make me a listen roll as you're restless. I'm assuming Babette would have taken a fan because she's out for the evening, so she's probably going to hand that over to Eugene just in case he's feeling a bit sort of hot and faint. That's a 38 over a 45 success. You hear the sobbing, 
but it seems slightly fainter than it was previously. I'm going to look at the papers. No, no, I, I, Eugene, I can see, see you looking at those. I, I can hear the, the, the crying and sobbing. It, uh, it seems like it's coming from over here. seems um like it's moving. seems seems less than, than before. As in moving away? Uh, yeah, I, I, I think so. Regular success, it's hard to say exactly where. It's, it's hard to say exactly uh, where exactly where it's coming from. Eugene, you have a look at the papers on the desk. The two things that strike you are the two large manuscripts that are sitting on the top. You recognise the name of the first play as the Black Mass. That's the play that you saw earlier. You don't recognise the name of the second play, the Sensual Supplice. Well, looks like our playwright has been... Indulging in some atmospherics. Let's keep going. We can come back and have a look at this, I suppose, in a bit. But if the sounds are getting fainter, we should probably... Go. Resolutely not looking at the skulls at this point. <laughs> we could take the papers with us. Would they fit in your bag? Because Eugene doesn't have one. Would they fit in a, an evening reticule keeper? The manuscripts themselves are written on fairly thin paper. They're around A5 in size, so I suppose you could fit them in as long as you don't mind everything being a little squished together. Yeah, that's fine. And you head back out into the tunnels. You follow the sounds of the sobbing. And as... The lights of the torch flicker and start to dim as the batteries wear down. You come across another cavern, and here you see an iron grate across the archway that leads into it. Behind the iron grate you see a bowl and a plate with scraps of meat on it. Can I have another listen roll, please? 83, that's a fail. 36 under 45, that's a success. 99 <laughs> against 60. Not a fumble, <laughs> but uh, not a success Close. Either. Anthony, you hear a new sound. You hear a breathing behind you. The sobbing appears to have stopped. But you hear a heavy breathing somewhere in the tunnels. Hey, hey, hey. Eugene, Bubba, do you, you hear that? Just shh, listen, listen, listen. If I try to draw their attention to it, Keeper, can I get them to hear it? I think we can count this as a second roll to listen for Eugene and Bubba to see whether they can also hear it. Really listen, really listen. You can hear it. That, that sound. This is someone else. So it's breathing like a... Zero four. Under 30, so extreme. You zero in on this sound, Eugene. It's almost animalistic. You can hear the, the, the slobber of saliva in the airways as it breathes. I'm pulling out my gun just as a as a... Like, this is getting... Yeah. 
Eugene's breathing a little bit heavier because darkness, things being close, now there's breathing, like being in the tunnel. This is a lot. But it sounds animalistic. Is it behind us or in front of us? It's behind you. Tony. Yeah. Turn around with that pistol of yours, if you don't mind. Tell me what's there. Don't move. Oh, nobody move, alright? Just keep it nice and sociable. And I'm just going to turn, like, really slowly, almost imperceptibly slowly. No sharp movements, nothing that could uh, um, kind of instinctually alert anything to react is, is the intention. Just go real slow. You shine the light down the tunnel. The faint flicker of the torch illuminates the bones and the rocks and the jagged shapes. And at the end, just outside of the range of the torch, you see a large, looming shadow. Initially, it looks still. But a quick movement shows two glowing yellow eyes looking directly at you. Do you hear the breathing? Increase. You hear the pace quicken. And you hear it say a word in French. But it's not a word that you recognise. It's not a dialect of French that you recognise. Can you give me a language French roll, please? Indeed I can. Oh, that's a 48 under a 50. Success. You think you recognize this as a a medieval dialect of French. Your French lessons, your French teacher would have probably gone through the classics with you when you were learning. So this is an odd old word. An old word from an old world. And the word is simply feast. And as you hear this word, you see two more shadows appear behind this shadow with equally yellow eyes. Can I have a luck roll, please? From everyone? Just from Anthony. Just Tony. Uh, it wasn't the French teacher, by the way. It was my nanny. Uh, oh, she used sorry. to look after us. Uh, but she would often say, you know, feast, feast, come on. Uh, she would She would have told you the stories of Roland, the Chanson de Roland. I have rolled a zero, zero, 003. Your torch flickers and almost fades but you're able to shake it and the light but in that second fraction of a second where the light dimmed these things have moved forwards you can see their long gangly limbs dragging on the floor you can see their furry canine features glistening in the light. You can see their oversized incisors and canines stripping with saliva. Oh, whoa, whoa, and they're stay. there. Stop. Stay. In front of you. And I would like a sanity roll from all three of you, please. Okay. <laughs> Sit. Stop. Stay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. 58 over 43. 15 under 47. 
42 against 59. That's a pass for me. For a pass, you lose one point of sanity. For a failure, it's 1d6. Eek. Oh, Ouch. three. Three. Trois. Anthony, what is your response to seeing these creatures? Um, I'm probably going to freak out, squeeze the trigger a bit too hard. That's fine. And scare Can myself you... in doing it. I'm, I'm kind of going like, sit, stay, 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 you get back, you, you, and the gun, when it goes off, it kind of scares me that it goes off. I wasn't expecting to. And it's actually probably something that, that Anthony's quite confident with. So it does shake him. Can you give me a firearms roll, please? I can. Ooh, 17 uh, over 50 is success. Hard success. <laughs> the bullet hits this, the first thing directly in the chest. And you can see that it's not. And that's when the smell hits you. You can smell this dank stench of death and decay. Can you have a constitution roll for me as well, please? Oh dear, it's all of us. I think you're in the front, aren't you? Yeah. Moment. Oh no. Go on, everybody give me a constitution roll as well. 89 over 40. Okay. Fail. That's a success. 36 against 60. 30 under 50 success. Anthony, on your failure, your the room starts to swim, your eyes start to darken, and you feel your consciousness is starting to slip. This smell is so strong, it overpowers you. You're going to need a power roll to try and stay at least conscious. <laughs> oh no. I've got such low power. Oh, okay, I've got 37 over 55. Uh, sorry, 37 over 35. So can I use luck on this to... You can indeed use your luck now. I need to use two points of luck. Uh, I've got a lot of luck, actually. I need to use it because I've got terrible stats. Uh, 45, so... my God. Yeah, 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 yeah. My dexterity is 25. This is a, This is a guy who carries himself literally by the definition of carries himself. Um, but you will be at a penalty for the foreseeable future because of this lightheadedness and this gotcha. almost lost there. And these things rush towards you. Can I have your dexterities, please? Oh, no. I think I'm dead. 70. Also 70. 25. <laughs> I too like to live dangerously. <laughs> <laughs> Let's make a run for it. <laughs> Where are you guys going? <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. Uh, so, yes, uh, you, Bobette and uh, Eugene, uh, you actually get to go first. Your dexterity is the highest. So, what are your actions? We go alphabetically, Bobette. Uh, what are the creatures doing at the moment? Are they advancing? They're advancing towards you. They're advancing. Uh, and what's behind us? Behind us is the grate. Behind is that is the right? Metal grate, yes. Right, so we can't retreat. No. Ooh, that's a difficult one. Can't really fight, doesn't really know what to do. Um, I think she's going to take the flashlight and shine it in their eyes with a view to if they kind of cover their faces or if they kind of fall back a bit or they're confused. 
hoping that will create a, a kind of a passage for them to escape through. What role do you think we'd give for this? This is a good one. Ooh, um, hmm. But it's not a physical manoeuvre, is it? I think this is a luck role. I think, are you able to, in in the in the fraction of a second you've got here, are you able to aim the torch well enough to get it into their eyes? Yeah. Give me that luck yeah. roll. Go with that, okay. My luck is still pretty good at 71. Oh, yes, 35 against 71. The creature that is nearest to you is dazzled by the light, and you can see it's not used to this light as well. It shies away. It's it's photophobic in the uh, in the glare of the torch, and it, it it covers its arm its eyes with its arm, leaving a small gap between the wall and it. Hmm. Yep. I'm gonna try and get through that gap. <laughs> Thanks. This for is that. definitely a dexterity roll. Okay, I've got good dex, so. And that is a hard success with a 22 under 70. You push past this creature. As you do, the smell of death and decay fills your nostrils. The lightheadedness starts to hit you here, but you power through it and you dive back down the corridor. Anthony, you've just fired a bullet at one of these creatures. It ain't happy. It's a little pissed off. It's going to swipe at you. What do you like to do? I got this. Uh, with a penalty I die. Dice. Uh, with a penalty dash. Shit, my dodge is 12. Uh, <laughs> I am going to... Um, does that mean it's getting up close to me, Keeper? I am going to stick my gun in its face and just repeatedly pull the trigger. You can't fight back with a firearm. It has to. It has to be. It has to be melee. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, you're quite right. Um, oh God, just there's no good options here uh, for this guy. Um, uh, okay, so he, d- 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 you, uh, you can see it on his character sheet. He has got brass knuckles, but I don't think he's actually put them on yet. Um, so instead of, kind of. Unless, Keeper, you'd allow me, as this thing is getting closer, he's just slipping on the brass knuckles within his jacket. If not, he's just going to grab the brass knuckles and almost like as if he's holding some kind of bar without putting them on properly, just slam it down into this thing's head. I will let you do that, yes. Then that's but I'll need a fighting ball for that with a penalty dice, please. Ah, oh, crap. Okay. <laughs> okay, well, the first one's a fail. It's okay, because the first swipe of the claws missed. Oh, but, of course, that. a ghoul... Has three attacks per round. <laughs> uh, well, actually, a mob boss has seven attacks per round. So. <laughs> and on the second, he rolls a naught five. And on oh. the third attack, he rolls a 21. So, shall we see how dead Newman is? A <laughs> Fighting, damage, 1d6 plus damage bonus. Damage bonus is 1d6, uh, 1d4, sorry. Yeah. It's a scratch. Need to find the dice. 
He's so dead that it hurts Newman. <laughs> I do so actually the first love this hit guy. is five points of damage. Oh. Santa Maria, huh? What's this guy doing to me, huh? And the second hit is nine points of damage. Oh. I, I think oh that's my, my intestines splattered up the walls. What the? The... Well, tell me how you die. Sorry, tell me how Anthony dies. <laughs> um, <laughs> really sadly. Uh, I think in this moment where th- this ghoul is coming in and like swiping and slashing at him, um, it's probably like, as, as I mentioned before, you know, he's not very fast. He's very not very dexterous at all. So this thing coming up to him quick and swiping at him, it, that, yeah. He's not used to this. He's used to sitting at tables and eating big meals and telling people what to do kind of thing. Uh, it, it kind of basically swipes out a huge kind of crater out of his stomach. And that, that splatter and that, that splosh of intestines just flats against the wall. Uh, and uh, Barbette and Eugene would be able to, to, to hear that. And I imagine he just kind of drops down to one knee and pulls his gun up, probably not even actually getting a shot off at the ghoul, but just kind of instinctively just you just hear like the five remaining shots of the 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 bullets uh firing out and then the kind of the click 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 and then a last swipe as you kind of hear like a neck snap or head even being ripped off um as anthony contralto's body very heavily hits the ground you are dead your journey in the catacombs is over. But at the fresh blood and your now decaying body, the other ghouls turn to your guts and you hear, the other two hear the chomping noise as they start sinking their teeth into this new feast. It's fair to assume that the catacombs are not particularly good hunting ground. A lot of the bones, bodies here, are bone. And if these creatures have now got a fresh meal, I'm going to give Barvette and Eugene a bit of a chance to escape here as well. Eugene is going to grab Barvette's arm and just start pulling his need, need to get out, I think. He's not even thinking about Mary at this point. Like, she's probably dead. Uh, <laughs> but he's not, he's not even capable of thinking about that because he's in full sort of shell shock mode of flight. I think that's the only thing in his mind right now. Can I have a same? Can I have a sanity roll from Eugene and Babette while they're yeah. escaping? I would think so. Absolutely. Foreseeing yep. a gruesome death totally of your let herself be pulled along. 34 under 46 maybe i think he's visualizing something else it wasn't these creatures maybe he's visualizing uh the enemy or or something of that sort and and gone back in his head to the war times so he's rationalizing it that way he couldn't have seen what he thought he saw poor light we're just we're just back there it's 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 okay it's it, we'll, we'll nope 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 I'd still like a sanity point lost mm-hmm. from you as well, please. And Barbette, how did you do? Uh, that was a fail, sadly. That was 74 against 58. Barbette 
has nothing that's prepared her for this ever. She doesn't go and see horror plays. Uh, she pro probably once danced the Queen of the Willies in Giselle, but that's probably the closest she's ever got to anything involving the undead. She just cannot compute this. She doesn't know what she's looking at. All that she has is this horrible animal fear of being hunted. She's not used to feeling hunted. She's usually the one who likes to take charge of situations and to not let herself feel vulnerable or put upon at all. She's uh, quite intimidating when she wants to be, but now she feels like prey and she's just running blindly. And roll me 1d6 sanity loss, please. Okay. That was a three. That's a three. You run through the tunnels. The white arrows that you have drawn thankfully still remaining. You return to the rope and you are able to follow it back out into the basement of the Grand Guignol Theatre. The room of the basement is dark. The large piles of items and set and scenery cast horrific shadows. After what you've seen in the tunnels, you know that you want to get out. Well, what was that? What were those, those things? It, it, it was... I, I, I don't know. We, we, we shouldn't be... Look, we need to get out. We are going to get out quickly. Straighten up, soldier. Just and you hear literally a click back in the trenches. Of a pistol behind you. Of course. Madame et Monsieur, I would appreciate it if you would turn around very slowly with your hands in the air. My friends and I wish to invite you to a show. And as you turn... Quite enough of a show, thank you. You see the tall, blonde form of Louis Latour, flanked either side by two large, lumbering canine ghouls. The creatures approach, and they grab you by the arms, they restrain you. But this is not a violent act of attack. This is restraint. And you are carried upstairs at gunpoint to the auditorium of the Grand Guino Theatre. The stage has been set. But this is a set you have not seen before. The stage shows a crude representation of the tunnels that you have just come from. You can see the painted skulls. The mastery of the artwork here is nowhere near as accurate and as delicate as the full performances you saw earlier this evening. But you can see what it is meant to be. In the centre of the stage is a large wooden box, painted crudely to look like a stone altar. Louis Latour has set up a table in the front of the auditorium, upon which sits a large leather-bound the leather appears mouldy and dank, and the pages, as it is opened, 
are crispy and dry. He looks at you and says, I would appreciate it if I could have the copy of the script back. As a director, it always helps to know the source material well. But I want to be able to prompt as we need to. And he spots them poking out of your bag, Babette. And he grabs the bag. Ha! Merci beaucoup. Please, my friends, I'm sure you will enjoy what you're about to see. But, please do make yourself comfortable. And the ghouls deposit you in seats in the front of the stalls. Their hands either side. And Louis Latour stands up and walks onto the stage. And he says, Mesdames et Messieurs, and everybody in between, tonight we have a show for you. Tonight you will not see humanity in all of its glory. Tonight you will not see the horrors or the joy that lie beneath. What you are about to witness will shock you. It will make you cry. But fear. I am the doctor, and I am on hand for when you are overcome. Now, without further ado, bienvenue au théâtre de Grand Guinal. And he starts reading. The play itself is a mockery, a vicious mockery of the Grand Guinal plays you have seen earlier this evening. It's contorted, it's twisted. Where there is human horror, there is nothing but vile sounds. Where there was laughter earlier, there is nothing but the mad, maniacal grimacing of an unhinged mind. And as he reads, you see, entering from the wings, row upon row of ghouls. And one of them carries with them the form of Mary Riley, still wearing the sequin dress from the earlier play. Mary is deposited upon the stone altar. Louis Latour turns to you in the audience, narrating as a Greek chorus would do in the plays of Sophocles. See before you the ghouls of Paris. See before you those who have been here before, who have no voice, but in this voice in the modern world they shall feast. This is the play, O ye gods. This is the play of the ghouls, written by and for the ghouls. These creatures who are more human than we humans ourselves. For ye who watch, you who devour the stories of the Grand Guinol, see before you the true horrors of humanity. And he turns to the large leather-bound book on the table. And as he does, the two ghouls either side of you release you. And they walk up onto the stage. And he starts chanting something in an unknown tongue. You, you quite, quite understand. Ya, il throw, 
And the ghoul starts swaying side by side, mesmerised by the sounds that he is repeating, almost hypnotised. You're currently at liberty, albeit briefly. Mm. What are your actions? Try and subtly set fire to things? I've got a, <laughs> I've got a lighter. Okay. <laughs> ye, so, ye old investigator solution to problem. It is a good one there as well. Make me a luck roll. Is Eugene doesn't carry a firearm. He was never very good at it anyway, and it reminds him too much of the war, so this is what he's got. That is a 13 under 50. You're still holding the can of oil paint. They just didn't notice. Set a splash. What are you pouring it onto or throwing this onto? Uh, are the seats wood wooden, or are they... The they... seats are indeed wooden, yes. Okay. Well... That's a start. Wood is flammable. Grease paint is flammable. So that's what we're going for. Barbette, what are your plans? Barbette, I think, is looking for an escape route. She's kind of trying not to move, but her eyes are darting about, trying to see and trying to remember which way they came in as well uh, when they first came into the theatre that night, because escape is all she can think about. The wooden seats quickly go up in flame. I would like a dexterity roll from both of you to jump mm -hmm. out of the way before you are, well, possibly engulfed. Burnt. Engulfed, that's a good word. I'd like a dexterity roll from both of you before you engulf in the conflagration here. Okay. 57 under 70, success. That was an 007 against 70 an extreme success she not only jumps out of the way she does a, a perfect ballerina's pull-up and does the 32 fuete from the end of the black swan <laughs> coda uh and just kind of circles her way out of the whole thing the the seats go up the the dry wood these 50 60 year old seats the dry wood and the straw padding whoosh immediately alights, and you see row upon row of the seats taking, taking. Louis Latour turns around and looks at you. No! No, you must not! You must not leave! The ghouls lose their concentration, and chaos reigns on the stage. As you escape through the doors, you can hear the rending of flesh as well. You don't want to think about what happens or who is happening. And you make it out to the street you can now see the orange glow of fire through the windows of the Grand Guignol Theatre you can see the smoke curling up and you can see people running towards the, the fire the theatre you can hear the bustle of the crowd but I don't think you can feel anything you've witnessed carnage chaos death just another night at the Grand Guignol Theatre. And a small epilogue for those who would like it. When the rubble of the Grand Guignol Theatre is examined the next day, there are no sign of any ghouls. There is, however, the body of Mary Riley 
found on the stage. It's supposed that she must have stayed behind in the theatre after the show. The badly burnt body, however, disguises the fact that there may have been teeth marks in it. Down in the catacombs, there is a small cavern with a wooden writing desk and a table with a row of skulls. But there's a new skull, very fresh, picked clean. <laughs> the skull of an American. What a nice addition to the collection. And that was Theatre of Flesh. Thank you very much. So, Rena, Lydia, Newman, that was A Theatre of Flesh. What were your thoughts? What were your favourite moments? What did you enjoy? Loved the atmosphere. Mm. And, and it was very, very vivid. Such a great sense of place and such a great setting as well. Um, yeah, you, you, you did a great job of really creating such a vivid picture of, of both the theatre and the catacombs. Mm. It, it was very immersive. I loved it. The setting is just fantastic. Like I love the idea really of, of using the Grand Grignol Theatre. Uh, which mm. is so something I've been interested in for a while. And just the way it weaves in very well with mythos horror. Like, it's almost like it was made for mythos horror, which is pretty fantastic. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. As a, a patron of the theatre uh, in my day job, um, I, I, I thought it was wicked. I really enjoyed the characters being in the theatre and the plays being on stage and getting those brief descriptions of the four different plays that were going on um, mm. and then kind of getting a sense of the other people in there as well and, and you know how we were enjoying it and, and rolling to see whether we understood it, whether it was tasteful to us. I, I quite like that, being a part of the, mm -hmm. as a character, being a part of the audience watching the, the Grand Guignol um, performance. And I think the scenario itself is a great little story here. The way that, again, that the Grand Guinor plays are presented with different success rates, different um, outcomes, whether you succeed or fail the role, that, again, gives you that sense that something's not quite right. But is it that something's not quite right, or is it that the theatre itself, the plays that you're seeing, are just that outrageous, mm. even for the time, outrageous yeah, for the yeah. time? And that's the thing with the Grand Guignol Theatre. The theatre opened in the late 1890s. It carried on until the 60s. But after World War II, the horrors mm -hmm. of real life outweighed the Grand Guignol. And viewership declined because people knew how horrible life could be. So it's, mm. uh, it's an interesting setting for the 20s. I also like the way that the author included real life figures from the Grand Guignol history. So André Delord and Paula Maxa are both uh, mm -hmm. actual people who wrote and performed with Grand Guignol. Uh, oh, were they real? Yeah, we're That's so cool. And did you say that the plays were actual ones as well? They are indeed, yes, with Guignol. the exception of The Black Mass, which was the one written by Louis Latour, who obviously is a fictional mm -hmm. character for this as well. But The Last okay. Kiss is a, a fairly famous Grand Guignol. In fact, you can, if, you, if you Google, you can actually find some photographs from the productions with the, oh. uh, the acid pouring in the flesh pouring off as well and again it's just very clever makeup it's all stagecraft but it's so realistic there's a, another one which I, I was thinking after i killed off newman uh, as character which is always a joy always a joy, always a joy. <laughs> um where the uh, a, a mad scientist resurrects a murder victim's head 
Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, oh, if only we're playing a reanimator scenario here. Mm. Absolutely a fitting end for Anthony. But uh... it was it was a nice moment though. It was yeah. I I do you know I enjoy opportunities where the dice the investigators they put themselves in a situation and then if the dice aren't kind to make the most of those moments yeah as a, as a player mm-hmm. even when your character dies it's rewarding because it's it's wrapped in and you know part of the scenario and to to describe your own death is always a fun thing to do yes indeed it was a very good death mm-hmm. <laughs> he wasn't running anywhere well, with 25 uh, dexterity he wasn't <laughs> running anywhere I also like that the setup makes experienced players think King and Yellow, right? With the theater and, mm, and yeah, also yeah. the blurring the lines between what is theater, what is reality, what is false. And then that little yep. subversion of it to be something else uh, was, was mm. very nice. Because I think a lot of people are going to go in going, oh, it's it's King and Yellow. It's going to be Carcosa something. Uh, so that was, that was nice uh, going That's around something- expectations. Yeah. That's something the author does well, mm. is he's put a lot of little breakout boxes, uh, giving mm. hints and tips. And one of those is that chances are the players are familiar with Cthulhu Mythos will suspect the case to be related to King in Yellow. And he's given a little thing on play it up and then surprise them with the subversion as well. Yeah. So it, it's very nicely, very nicely put together there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think I, I caught some nods to other... Phantom. Parisian theatrical uh, things, Phantom of the Opera. Phantom. I, I think there was perhaps I'm afraid that was a, a bit of Pietro from me de Vampire from Anne Rice. So I, yeah. oh. okay. <laughs> and uh, had, but I love that. Had had uh, had things gone slightly differently, you may very well have found Joseph Bouquet hanging, and another uh. nod to Phantom <laughs> later as well. But uh, got to be done, doesn't it? Excellent. That was a Theatre of Flesh. Thank you very much, everybody, for joining us for this matinee production until the curtain rises again. As we draw the curtain onto tonight's performance, we thank you for joining us and look forward to inviting you back to the Miskatonic Playhouse. In the meantime, you can also find us in the links below. And if you'd like to submit your scenario for us to play, email miskatonicplayhouse at gmail.com.